Join with me, please, in uh, the book of Daniel. Daniel has been an exciting journey already, and I'm just so thankful. My Bible now just falls open to Daniel. I just love Daniel. It's been a lot of fun to study, to highlight, to mark, to, to, to understand what God has shared with us in this wonderful book of the Bible. Last week we started in Daniel 9 and we went over the first 19 verses, which is a prayer. A prayer that reminds us not only to be frequent, but also fervent in our prayer life. And to have a, a life of prayer. Do we need prayer today? Amen. Amen. Absolutely. I need prayer. I know you need prayer. We all need it. But Daniel 9, then in verse number 20, makes a shift. And God answers the prayer. I'm thankful that God still answers prayer today. And in Daniel chapter 9 and verses 20 through 27, we see a, a really God is answering through a prophetic timetable that he's sharing with us here today. A, a man named Leopold Kahn, who was a European rabbi, studied the prophecy of the 70 weeks of Daniel. And on the basis of verses 25 and 26, which we'll cover today, he came to the conclusion that the Messiah had already come. Now, he was a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi. They, they looked forward to the coming of Jesus. And so he was puzzled by this. And so he talked to another rabbi who was older, and he says, where is the Messiah? Well, this older rabbi didn't have a clue. Where was, where was the Messiah? And so he said what any person would say, well, I guess it's in New York City. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. Everyone seems to be leaving New York City lately, but that's another story. So Khan sold everything he had, and he bought a ticket to America so he could go look for the Messiah. He arrived in New York City, and he began walking the streets of this massive town, and looking up and down, wandering the streets in the morning and the evening. And one night as he was walking down a street and he heard some people singing. In this little gospel mission, he heard people lifting up their voices in praise. Curious, he came in and sat down in the back pew. He was already a Baptist, he just didn't know it yet. All right, the first, the first church laughed, okay, I'm just saying. All right, so y'all got to wake up with me here. But he came in and he sat down and he heard the preacher preach that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And that night he called upon Jesus Christ as Savior and he was gloriously saved. Khan just knew this was the answer. This is who we've been looking for. And so he went out, he found a place, he began to, a little building where he could begin to, to hold a service. And he swept out the building, he set it up with some chairs, and he began his own gospel meetings. And this became the very first outreach of what was to become the American Board of Missions to the Jews. And it all started because a man, a rabbi, read Daniel 9. Daniel 9 is awesome. It so holds so much truth for us, not just for Daniel, not just for the Jews, but for us today as well. And I'm thankful for what God reveals here in this glorious chapter. And it helps us as we look at Revelation to understand a little bit more about how it all ties together. You ever read through Revelation and thought, what in the world is going on here? This thing and then this thing and then this thing. Well, Daniel helps tie it all together here as he deals with this prophetic timeline. And so as we look at this, I, I want to just encourage you. Because this week, as I've studied Daniel 9, I, I personally have experienced a, a lot of different emotions. There have been times where I laughed with joy. Man, what a joyful day it's going to be when Jesus comes again. Amen? But there were times where great tears. I wept and I labored over the message. And so Daniel 9, for me, has just been a, a labor of love. And I hope that this, this, this message this morning, you sense the heart of the Lord in all of it. But one thing it's done for me personally is it solidified my commitment that first, that Jesus Christ is Lord. But secondly, there's urgency in this hour. There's no time like the present. There's no day like today. And there's no way we can identify the day, the hour, but we can easily see through Scripture the evidences in the news and that we are in the, uh, the age of the church is coming to a close. Sir Isaac Newton said, and you just thought he had other theories, but this is what he said, about the times of the end, a body of men will be raised up who will turn their attention to the prophecies and insist upon their literal interpretation in the midst of much clamor and opposition. And here we are. We gather together in Daniel 9 and we seek God's intended meaning in this day and age. And so let's go ahead and look at Daniel chapter 9 and verse number 20 as we start here together. And I remind you that this is God answering Daniel's fervent prayer that we read last week. 
And whilst I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yea, whilst I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people. And upon this holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The streets shall be built again, and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. For the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate even unto the consummation. And that, uh, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this tremendous passage of Scripture. Lord, how you answered a simple man of God, Lord, with this great answer from the angel Gabriel. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege we have to be able to just, just to stop today, this morning, and to turn our hearts to you. And my burden in my heart today is that we would have a glimpse of your heart. That we might be able to see, Lord, your passion, your love, and God, your compassion for us and for all the world. Lord, I thank you that you love us. I thank you, Lord, for this reminder, for this hour and this moment to live. We pray these things in Jesus' glorious and blessed name. Amen. After a look at Daniel chapter 9, I want to remind you of a couple of things. Daniel had lived in Babylon for nearly 70 years, and he wanted to know when was God going to answer the question, when would Israel be able to come, uh, come back to the land? They were separated. They were drug out of this land. The Babylonians through Nebuchadnezzar had pulled them out of the land and they were stuck in Babylon. Many of them were. And so they were literally exiles from their own country. And it's in the midst of this prayer that God is speaking to Daniel and he gives the prophecy of the 70 weeks. Can you just imagine this man? Now this is, this is a man who's 80, 85 years old. We talked about that last week. And, and I just sense, in my mind's eye, I picture him over this rough wooden table in this, in this simple room, and he's got maybe the parchment that is there before him, tears coming down his face as he weeps, and he seeks God and says, Lord, when will we return? Lord, Lord, when will you fulfill this answer? As he cries out to God in worship, he cries out to God in repentance, he seeks God's purpose. He seeks God's timing for all that was going on. And though we don't know the exact time that Daniel began to pray, we find that it was about the time of the evening sacrifice that the angel Gabriel came to Daniel and he touched him and he began to speak to him. The, the time was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And if the temple were still standing and if the priests were still continually faithfully officiating over the temple sacrifices, then there would be an evening oblation. And the evening oblation was about 3 o'clock or the ninth hour. And this is when the lamb was offered as a burnt uh, sacrifice. It's about the same time that Jesus Christ died on the cross. And it's the same sense that we get every time we go to God in prayer is this opportunity we have to enter into and offer a spiritual sacrifice to Him through our prayer. Psalms 141 verses 1 and 2 said, Lord, I, I cry unto thee, make haste unto me, give ear to, unto my voice when I cry unto thee. Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense and the lifting up of mine hands as the evening sacrifice. You see, Daniel knew his prayer was essential. Church, let me remind you, your prayer is essential. Today, this year, all we've heard is what's essential, what's non-essential, essential, non-essential. Non and we've, many of us have been told we're not essential. They told us church wasn't essential. 
But this is what I've learned is that prayer is always essential. We cannot stop praying. We cannot stop praying frequently or fervently. We must continue and persevere in prayer. And that's why Jesus Christ said, men ought always to pray and not to faint. Well, this, God sent the angel Gabriel here, and I just want to pause and mention that this is the, the second time the angel Gabriel has come to Daniel. This is the same angel that God used to bring a message to John the Baptist's mother. Is the same angel that God used to bring a, a message to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the message of the Messiah. And so we see that God has used the angel Gabriel throughout Scripture. And, and as we look at this, I, I just want to remind you that there are people that have some really weird thoughts about angels today. I want to just share with you very briefly what the Bible says about angels. I'm not going to go into a lot of depth here. I just want you to see what the Bible says. Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 13 and 14. He's talking about angels here. I'm just going to highlight verse 14. And he says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Listen, the Bible says they're ministers of God, and He uses them to answer questions and prayers, and just as He did in Daniel's life. And although angels are normally invisible, we see that there are times where God allows people to, uh, to, to see with their eyes the work that God is doing. For example, it was an angel that knocked, unlocked the prison's doors so that Peter could walk out in Acts chapter number 12. Then in Acts chapter number 10, it was an angel that God sent to, to Cornelius to answer the questions that he had in seeking salvation in Jesus Christ. And so we see that, that even when Daniel prayed, God again sent an angel. And he answers the question on God's behalf. He was a minister. He ministered before the Lord. And so God gives Daniel just an incredible opportunity to understand. And I want you to look here in verse number 21. He says, Yea, while I was speaking, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, what I mentioned a while ago, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. I remind you in Daniel chapter 1 and verse number 17, he was known to be a man of great understanding. And, and here again, God is sharing with him understanding. Let me just pause real quick and say, wisdom comes from God. It does not come from Google. <laughs> Amen. You know, we, I, go to, I use Google a lot. Anybody else addicted? You know, I, I'm like, okay, so when did that battle happen? And I'll look it up, okay? Or, or when did that? I just want to know because I'm an information addict. Anybody else willing to join me in the club? Amen. We, we love our information today. We have more, we dissect more information today than they did, uh, than ever before. And, and I just, I'm not bringing that up for any other reason, except sometimes we think our wisdom comes from Google. Instead, we must realize that wisdom comes from God. Amen. James 3.17 says, Wisdom that's from above is, is both pure, peaceful, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. That's the wisdom that God offers. And he said, If any man lack wisdom, let him what? Ask of who? God, good. I think y'all already said it. Y'all were just faster than me. But that's what the Bible says in James 1.5. And so let me just say that I will confess before you, oftentimes I have to come before God and say, God, I, I don't know, but you do. God, I'm not the man with the answers, but you're the God of the answers. God, and you're the one that knows. And that's why I'm so thankful that as we come to Daniel and we see him, he doesn't, he doesn't go to the king and say, King, when, we come, when can we go back home? We're ready to go home. He goes to God and he says, God, when, when will you answer this prophecy? And God answers him. He gives him wisdom from above. And then we see here in verse number 23 how God thinks of Daniel. What a humbling moment when we read God's thoughts of Daniel. He says, At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandments came forth. He says, As soon as you started praying, God sent me. He says, And I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. What an incredible thought. God looked at Daniel and he says, You are one of my, one of my children that I consider greatly beloved. Another person in the Bible that God said that he loved, who was the greatly beloved, is the Apostle John. He was the apostle that leaned on the Lord's breast at the Last Supper. He was the apostle that was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, where God came and met with him and revealed to him the revelations of Jesus Christ. And both of these men, both of the books that they written, they wrote, both Daniel and the revelation of Jesus Christ, were written by men of whom God said they are men who are greatly beloved by God. What an incredible testimony. 
What an incredible thing that God would say. Now, why would God choose to use these men except for, here's the secret, they, God used them because of their unusual obedience to God. Say, so God, here I am. God, I love you. I trust you. Now, all of that is for free this morning. We're going to jump right into our points today. And I just want you to kind of look at with me, because in verse number 24 becomes the answer. Uh, and so that verses number 20 through 23 kind of reveals the interaction of, uh, that, that happened in heaven, uh, the prayer of Daniel. All of that it culminates to this answer, verses 24 through 27, as Daniel says, Lord, reveal the time for us. And, and truly, I've, ne- I've never had so many conversations about, when do you think the Lord is coming back? Amen. Anybody else hear, hearing a lot of that conversation? Well, we're going to give you a timetable today, and we're going to, we're going to hopefully uh, make it clear as mud for you today. And hopefully that helps. But let's look at first the purpose. Why would God answer this question? Because God lays out the purpose that He, he lays out for the 70 weeks, and that purpose is for the people of Israel. Now, let me just clarify something. A lot of theologians want to spiritualize the church and say the church has become Israel. But you can't do that in the Bible. We're in a different dispensation. The church is not Israel, and we will never be the church. And so what happens if you say, well, the church is Israel, then your eschatology gets messed up. Your ecclesiology gets messed up. All kinds of ologies are messed up. And you're like, I don't even have that kind of ology, Pastor. What are you talking about? Listen, what all I'm saying is, is it, mess, it distorts your interpretation of the Word of God. God deals with Israel, and now He's dealing with the church. And one day again, He will deal with Israel. Amen. We're going to get with that when we talk about how, uh, how God breaks us down in this passage. But I just want to encourage you here, if you hear someone talking about uh, the different uh, post-trib, mid-trib, pre-trib, we're going to talk about that as, more, as well this morning so you understand where they come from regarding those things. But listen, let me just say that this prophecy of this 70 weeks is not for the church. And I'm thankful for that because when we look at the final week in verse number 27, I don't want to be here. All right, so let's talk about this. He lays out six purposes. And so before I get sidetracked, let me just focus on verse 24 here. He said, 70 weeks are determined upon, what does he say? Thy people, upon thy holy city. Remember, Daniel is an Israelite. He is a Jew. And so God is dealing with his people here. And so his purpose is, first off, to finish the transgression. Listen, the Jewish people nationally had sinned greatly against God. They turned their back on God over and over again. If you want to see a cycle of insanity, turn to the book of Judges and read. Right. They would, they would, God would bless them. They would do good. They'd forget God. They'd fall in sin, and then they'd come into captivity. God would give them a judge, and it would just go over and over and over again. How many times do we read this in Judges? Listen, and God is dealing with them, and He says, Listen, I'm trying to bring a conclusion to this cycle of insanity in your life. The second thing was we see he wanted to make an end of sin. You see, God does not like sin. It wasn't his plan that Adam would eat that, uh, that fruit in the Garden of Eden. That was our choice. I'm thankful that God is both sovereign and gives us the ability to choose today. Because God is able. He can, he can do both of those things. But listen, this is what, what we realize is that, uh, that God reveals to us his purpose is to bring a conclusion to these sins that have plagued Israel. Israel was scattered. They were a suffering nation because they were a sinful nation and God wanted to bring them back to a place of healing. But how can He do that? By making reconciliation for iniquity. What does this refer to but Jesus Christ? You see, this is meant this is to offer a sacrifice that would atone for, the, for their sin. But not just their sin, but the Bible says for the sins of the whole world. And this has happened specifically at the cross of Christ. Listen, who is Israel's Messiah? They just haven't recognized Him yet. And so while this has already happened, Christ has already died on the cross, it's still future in the regards that they recognize Him as their Messiah. But I want to point out a couple of things with you. If you will uh, look in your Bibles, 1 John 2, 2. I will look in Ephesians 5 and Isaiah 53 in just a moment. Because I want you to see that when Jesus died on the cross, He died for the sins of all men, for the whole world. And 1 John 2, 2 says, And He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Listen, God says all of us have the opportunity to be saved. It's made freely a gift for all men. And, this, there's, and God leaves no room for the doctrine of election in that statement. 
This is why we proclaim the good news of the gospel to sinners everywhere, because God wants all men equally to be saved. We also see that Christ died for the church. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25, one of, the, one of the verses I'm yet to accomplish, I love my wife, but I can't love her quite like Christ intended me to. Amen, men? Amen. I'm still working on that. It says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. I'm perpetually working on this, trying to love my wife like God intends me to love her. But Christ died for the church. He died for the people of Israel. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 3. It says, He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. He died for Israel. But listen, it's not just us, the church. It's not just uh, uh, the people of Israel. But we see that, uh, that Christ died for all men. People from every tribe, every nation, every location. In Revelation chapter 5 and verse number 9, it says, yet, it says, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed unto God by thy blood, the blood that is shed on Calvary, out of every kindred and every tongue and people and nation. Do you get the picture? Every Every person has the opportunity to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior today. This is the reconciliation that God wanted. This is what God wants for your life. This is the, the, what God wants for the lives of men everywhere. And this is what, what we have to look forward to one day. It's not going to be a white church. It's not going to be a black church. It's not going to be a brown church when we get to heaven. It's going to be God's church. And let me just tell you, all this division that we're seeing today is not of God because God says the ground is level at the cross. And when God looks at me and you, He doesn't see a color of our skin or where we're from or our background or any of those things. He sees someone that needs the blood of Jesus Christ and only the blood of Christ will save. So the first three focused on the sin aspect, but the last three focus on God bringing righteousness and the future kingdom, kingdom of the Messiah. The purpose is here. The, the, the fourth one is to bring an everlasting righteousness. When Christ returns, He will establish His righteous kingdom. Hallelujah. Amen. Won't that be a glorious day? Man, we, we, you, I don't know. I don't care what your politics are. None of those guys are near as good as Jesus is going to be. Oh boy, he's going to be a glorious, uh, a glorious Lord to rule and reign on this earth. In Jeremiah chapter 23, in the future prophecy, he says in verses 5 and 6, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch. A king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. That's our God that we serve today. That's the one that we worship today. Will one day be worshiped by everyone on this globe. Where, where churches are struggling today, it's going to be uh, overfilled to capacity when Jesus is here on earth. But he says the next thing is to seal up vision and prophecy. In that day, when these Old Testament prophecies and all that God has done is fulfilled, then there will be no need for the visions or the prophets. God will have fulfilled it with His person on this earth. And then finally we see to anoint the most holy. This refers to the sanctifying of that future temple that's described in Ezekiel chapter 40 verses 40 through, uh, 40 through 48 in, that, in those chapters. And these six purposes help to answer uh, David's or Daniel's prayer. Because God says, listen, my purpose, you're my people, and I want you close. I want to bring you into my love my forgiveness. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse number 10 says, And I will pour out upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirits of grace and supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn we see that day the city of Jerusalem will be rebuilt, the temple and its ministry restored, all because of the atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross, all because of what Christ did nearly 2,000 years ago. Daniel chapter 9 and verses 25 through 27 reveals the program. You ever been to an event, uh, graduation? Like to, uh, I'm not a real big... Uh, I've been to so many graduations in my life, I get tired of going to graduations, but I still attend them. But they give you a program when you go. 
and the, someone's going to sing, and someone's gonna, we're going to do the, national, uh, the Pledge of Allegiance and, or maybe the National Anthem or something, and they tell you what's happening in this program. And so you have an idea of what's going to happen while you're there. Well, here's, a, here's something cool. God has given to Daniel a program for some future events that's going to happen. So let's talk about this very quickly. First off, let's look at these 77s. In verse 24, he says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. The word, it's important here to understand what the, uh, what the word weeks here means. The word weeks means literally sevens. And so Gabriel is speaking uh, about it, 70 periods of seven years. In other words, 490 years total, all combined. And then he divides the 77s into three significant periods. If you look in, in verse number 24 and 25 and 26 and 27, we see that there's a period of seven weeks. That's the first part, which is 49 years. Then there's a second part of 62 weeks, which is 434 years. And there's a period of, seven, uh, of one week, which is seven years. And, and as we look at this, we see these three different periods here uh, portrayed on this little outline here. We see how God has laid it out. Seven weeks uh, and 62 weeks makes a 69 weeks. There's a gap because we're living in the church age, and then the final week is fulfilled during the tribulation. And so we're going to get to that here in just a moment as we look at the future coming uh, tribulation period and that final week. But let's go first to the period number one. This is really all about return. Returning, the people of Israel returning back. In verse number 25, he says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto, uh, to the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. And so he's talking about this period of return, this 49 years, this first seven weeks. And, and really the issue for timing is the date of the decree because there's actually three decrees mentioned in the Bible where they can go back and build. The first one is mentioned in Ezra chapter 1. King Cyrus permitted the Jews to go and to return to their land and rebuild their temple. The second one was the decree of Artaxerxes in 457. And he sent Ezra to Jerusalem in Ezra chapter 7, in, uh, verses 12 through 26. And the, and the last one, which I believe is the one that God refers to here, is when King Artaxerxes in 445 authorized Nehemiah to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. It would be their homes, it would be the temple, it would be the walls. The city would be complete, and that's what he was calling. He says, now it's time to return in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 5 through, five through 8. And this is probably the date that God was, that God was indicating here in, in 445 B.C. And so per period one really... The 70 weeks starts 445 B.C. Period 2, let's talk about this very quickly in verse number 26. It says, And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. Gabriel affirmed there was three, three, sets, three periods. The first one was seven weeks, the second was 62 weeks, and the last one was seven weeks. And we're going to separate the last one because God did in verse 27. And so we're going to just put that one on pause right now. So there's two periods here. We're going to add together both the 69 and the 7. Uh, and that give, Excuse me, 62 and the 7. That gives us 69 weeks. 69 weeks uh, times 7 is 483 years. Now, 483 years, which is, uh, which is uh, what, what has already transpired, if you take this and you understand the Jewish calendar is 360 days a year, we come to a figure of about 173,880 days. And you're thinking, all right, Pastor, you lost me way back at uh, point number one. I'm getting somewhere with this, so just hang tight. I, I enjoy math, and so I don't get to use it much, and so let me just use it in my sermon today, Okay. Can I get any math teachers, anyone that loves math here today? Two plus two is five, right? All right, thank you very much. All right, so I'm, I'm qualified to, to do this today. But and here we go. So we have 483 years. Multiply that by 360, and you arrive, arrive at 173,880 days. Now, if you go forward from 445 with, those, with all of those days and those years that God's given us, we're going to come to an approximation uh, of time of uh, April uh, six, the year 32. Now, there's going to be some discrepancy in this. And I looked at this and I saw some, some scholars said, what well, is the year 30? Some said 33, some said 32. And, and, and I'm, just, I'm just looking at this and I think, okay, uh, you know, there's some human error I'm going to calculate in this because I, I'm just a man, I'm not a prophet. Uh, and so, but let, let's just point to what happened on that day. It was on this day that Jesus Christ 
came into Jerusalem during the triumphant entry. It was on this day when Jesus Christ, sitting upon that foal, upon that, 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 that little uh, colt, uh, that He uh, was paraded into Jerusalem. It was on this day when they cried out, Hosanna, uh, and, and they were singing praises of Him. They were putting down the palm branches, and, they were, and, and, that, and then it was a joyous celebration. That's what's happening on, on this day, when, when this came to a conclusion here in this final day. And this is what is going on. But I just remind you that it was on the cross there in John chapter 19 and verse 15 as he's preparing to go to the cross that the Jews cried out, We have no king but Caesar. They rejected him. And in Luke chapter 19 and verse 14, they refused him. And his rejection brought salvation for the sins of the whole world. Listen, when they rejected him, they crucified him on the cross. And today we are the recipients of that glorious blessing of being called the church of Jesus Christ. I praise God for that day. I praise God for the salvation of Jesus Christ. I praise God for what He has done. And as Gabriel told Daniel that that, that decree would go forth and that time to rebuild the city and the Messiah would come and that exact number of years passed and God fulfilled it perfectly. What a glorious thing that God has done. But then there's one final thing that God mentions. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27 and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblations to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now you read that and you think, boy, pastor, this sounds like the confused ramblings of uh, someone who doesn't know what they're talking about, until you understand a little bit more fully what God's Word says. This final period, or this final week, is seven years. As he looks in verse number 7, it says, And he, referring to verse number 26, the subject matter there, in verse number 26, And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. So we're not talking about the Messiah, not, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That, By the way, that was fulfilled in A.D. 70 when the Romans, who were the people of the coming prince, destroyed the, the temple and destroyed the city there. But as we look at this, we see that the subject matter is the Antichrist. He points to that prince that shall come in verse 26. And this final period is the period that we refer to as the tribulation. This is the final period that will be a time of terrible suffering. And it will finally climax, though, in the return of Jesus Christ. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 19. You can read about it as Christ talks about it in Matthew 24 verses 15 through 35. We see that this is the final period that begins at the signing of a covenant between the Antichrist and the Jewish nation. We call it a peace treaty today. And this is what's going to happen. Do you know the number one thing that Israel desires above everything else today? To build a temple. Guess what this peace treaty will allow them to do? Build their temple. Now what's really intriguing, and I don't have time to go into all the different details that have been manifest in the last few years, is all the different things that are prepared for the coming building of the temple. From the red heifer, which is needed to sanctify the temple once it's completed, which by the way, they believe they have one, to other things that they have already built the altar, They've built many of the different things already in Jerusalem, ready to go, so when the building is erected, they can move right in instead of worship. You see, we look at these things and we think, oh, this is a long ways away. Pastor, you don't understand. They've been preaching about the coming of Jesus Christ and the rapture of the church since 1970. We've been listening to this my whole life, and yet it's never happened. Let me just remind you that, that God says we won't know the, the day or the hour. I'm not pr proposing this is going to happen this week, although it wouldn't surprise me. Have you lived in 2020 this year? Anybody else been present? It has been insane, and so what a perfect time for Jesus to come. I'm not saying it's going to be 2021 or 2022 or anything of that nature, but what I am saying is God is preparing and God is planning for this final week this, and that's revealed in Daniel chapter 20, uh, 9 and verse 27. And I want you to see a little bit about what happens as we shared a few weeks ago about the Antichrist because after three and a half years, the Antichrist, who was this glorious 
world leader who brings in a time of great, quote-unquote, peace, he reveals his real character as a spawn of Satan. And after three and a half years, he seizes the temple, he destroys life, and he forces people to worship him. And Daniel calls this later the abomination of desolations. Referred to in Revelation 13, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is a tool of Satan, and he will reveal himself. I don't think he's, we're going to know who he is beforehand. Someone asked, Pastor, do we know who he is today? Do they know who they are? I'm like, no, we don't know who he is. We can't identify him. But 1 John 4, 3 reminds us that the spirit of Antichrist is here already. So we don't know who he is, but we know that Satan's ready. But I want to just put a, just a bright note on this little, little thought here. It's only seven years, and the Jesus comes back. Amen. And then the Bible says he wins. Amen? Amen? There's no defeat. I mean, it's not even a contest. It's not like this Marvel movie where good and evil are at, at, at this cosmic, awesome battle, and it's like, man, this is so epic, you know? And you're thinking, man, I can't get any better, and you're on the edge of your seat. It's going to be like Jesus comes down, the, the mountain splits, he speaks, and boom, they die. It's, it's just like that. You're going to be like, well, that was kind of a letdown. That is not at all like Marvel pictured it, you know. But let me just say, it's going to be a glorious day. And, and we can read about that in Revelation 19. But I just want to just stop real quick and just share with you, there's a parenthesis here in the middle of all this. There, there's a little break between week 69 and week 70. The angel Gabriel promised that God would restore Israel to their land. Jerusalem and the temple would be rebuilt and God would make provision for the cleansing of the nation. Let me just say, this hadn't happened yet. That's still future prophecy. And so God is showing us that there's a parenthesis here. As the Old Testament saints looked at the future events, they didn't think in terms of years, but in terms of events. And so the major events... They focused on those that surrounded the Messiah. For example, uh, let me just invite you to look at a couple of familiar passages. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse number 6. As they looked at these prophecies, as they were reminded of these truths, they saw these things as one event that were together. That's why it was so easy for them to reject the Messiah. Okay, so for example, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse number 6. There's two prophecies here. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And that refers to what, church? The birth of Christ. Thank you very much. But then look here. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Has he ruled on this earth? No, not yet. That's a future prophecy, but when God chose to sandwich it together, the Jews are going to look at that and say, oh, it's all one event, but we recognize now on the backside of things that these are two distinct events that God is referring to. But this is also seen in Zechariah chapter 9. If you want to look in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10 in your Bible, you're going to see His first coming. Uh, he, he didn't come to reign on a, on a throne, but on the hearts of men. And it's at the second coming that He will reign on a throne. In verse second, excuse me, Zechariah nine verse nine, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon the colt, uh, upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Now that's his first coming. We saw this at the triumphant entry of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter nineteen. But when Jesus Christ comes again, he's going to be riding upon a horse. Amen. A great military leader who will simply uh, just come and devour the Antichrist and those that, that follow him. The following verse, in verse 10, And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bows shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen, and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and the river even unto the ends of the earth. Listen, nothing like this has happened yet. We're still talking about wars and rumors of wars, and we're still fighting evil in this world. We, we, don't, we haven't seen the, the, the uh, swords broken and melted down into plowshares yet. That's still future. So where are we now? The age of the church. At the completion, when Jesus Christ came to this earth, the Bible says that the Messiah was cut off, and that began the age of the church. What the Old Testament prophets couldn't see was the, the evidence of the church or the Holy Spirit. But it came in Acts chapter 2, didn't it? 
when the Holy Spirit came, we saw that, that, that God used the church in a mighty way to pro, proclaim and proliferate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And today, God has put Israel's timeline on hold. It's like God pushed a pause button, and that timeline is on hold. And now we're enjoying a time of liberty and grace and the opportunity as a church to share the gospel of Jesus Christ right now, today. When will it end? I don't know. I wish it did. I could, be, I could be a millionaire. I could write a book and all kinds of stuff. 88 reasons why Jesus Christ will come back in 1988. It was a bestseller. Then for some reason, everybody wanted to throw it away. I don't have a clue why. But listen, Daniel wasn't told that the rejection and the death of the of Messiah would bring about a new thing. He didn't know that it would bring about this spiritual body that would include Jews and Gentiles. He didn't know that it would, it would, it would bring us all to the cross where we could be level with, with, with one another, not ignoring uh, the, the nationalities and past and all those things because we recognize that it's only Christ that saves. He didn't know that. But it's in this age of the church that we are called today to live. You and me, and as a Gentile, I'm saying, I want to say thank you, Lord, because God's offered me salvation. But not just me, He's made it available for all men everywhere. And as a Gentile, I can come to the cross and find that He loves me, He died for me, and when I put my faith in Jesus Christ on January 31st, 1988, I rem I'm reminded that it was at the very moment that the presence of the Holy Spirit came into my life, took up permanent residence, and has never, never left me or abandoned me. He has been a constant companion in my life. That's the age we get to live in today. Guess what? The Old Testament states didn't have that. The Old Testament states didn't even have a Bible. That you, How many of you brought your Bible to church today? Amen? Amen. They didn't have that. This is a blessing. And you say, look at all the problems I have in this world. In 2020, Pastor, you don't understand. And let me just say, you don't understand. We are blessed. We are so blessed. And he said, God says... I have placed you and me here in this time to live. This is your call. This is your generation. These are the people that God has given us the responsibility to continue to reach and to share the gospel. This is our community, the community of people around us that God's called us to love and demonstrate Christ to us. This is the place where God has called us to live and to be able to demonstrate the, the, the joy of the Lord because the joy of the Lord is my strength. Amen? So here's the question. When does it end? The countdown to rapture. The million dollar question. And here's the best answer I could come up with from Scripture. I don't know. But this is what I know that many theologians argue. Is it going to be pre-tribulation? Is it going to be mid-tribulation? Is it going to be post-tribulation? And I don't like to argue with, with people who are crazy. I mean, who would want to live their life here on the tribulation? Have you read the Bible? I'm just saying. But here's the reality. The Bible teaches a pre-tribulational rapture. Before the tribulation kicks off, the church is removed. If you go to Revelation chapter 4 and you look for the church in Revelation 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, you don't see the church because we're not here. Glory, hallelujah, I'm with the Lord in heaven. And, I'm, I'm, and now y'all can stay if y'all want, but I want to be in heaven. And because there's two things that happen in he heaven. One, I get to enjoy the Bema seed of Christ and the rewards of, uh, for all of our labor will be, will be shared. And then, get this, we get to eat. The marriage supper of the Lamb, what a glorious day. Where we are united with our Savior, never to be separated again. First Thessalonians 4, chapter 4 says, and, and this says that we will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. You know why this tribulation is not our time? Because the Bible calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. It's not our trouble. It's those who have rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior. They will go through this specifically as God is dealing with Israel because they have chosen not to repent. And from Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24 reveals to us His purpose is to draw His people back unto Himself so that they might be saved. We don't know the date. We don't know the hour. I, don't, I, I can't even be certain on the year. But it is apparent that the season is upon us. You can't look around you and, and be a Bible believer, read your Bible, and listen to the Lord and, and be able to say, well, it's not for eons to come. The reality is that we're in the season. 
It's like God has set the, set the pencil on the paper and He's about to close the parentheses there. And as He prepares to close, here's the question. What do we do? Here's a suggestion. After church, it'll be over shortly, 1230. Hope you brought your bed sheets. We're going to throw our bed sheets on us. We're going to go out here over to the hillside and we're going to jump up and down and get ready for Jesus coming. Rapture practice. Who wants to help me? Just kidding. We're not doing that. The Bible tells us what we do. He says, occupy till I come. What does that mean? Does that mean we just fill a pew, fill a chair, wait in a waiting room, play on our phone until things uh, start happening? No, this means we continue. We share the gospel. We go into all the world. We preach the gospel to every creature so that people, man, woman, child, might know the glorious news that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, God's called us in this age to be faithful and to be found faithful so that when that trumpet sounds, I won't be uh, found doing something foolish, but instead I will be found faithful so that when I, uh, when I enter into the presence of God, I'll be able to say, well, here, well done, a good and faithful servant. As we close this morning, I want you to, to turn in your Bible to Luke 19. It will be on the screen, but I want you to look at it in your Bible with me. Luke chapter 19, I mentioned that the triumphant entry of Christ already, and, and as Christ was going along, some tried to rebuke Him and say, tell your disciples to stop rejoicing and stop proclaiming that you're God, and don't they know that you're not God? And Jesus' reply was, even if they were quiet, the rocks themselves would cry out that I am God. It was time for the world to know that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And as we come to the end of the chapter in Luke, Luke 19 and verse 41, we see that, that this time of jubilation, this time of celebration, this time of laughter, in the midst of this, that God has placed something that, that to me just was so interesting to note because we see and glimpse the heart of God in the midst of all of this. And when we look at the world today and we see, and we see the world going in a direction that bothers and concerns us, I want you to see the heart of God in all of this because remember, Jesus was about to be crucified in verse 41 and he said, says, and it was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. Did you see that? Instead of a day of jubilation, instead of saying, yes, you finally recognize that I'm God. Yes, I'll finally allow you to recognize that, that I am the Lord. Instead, as he looked at the city, he wept. Why? Why would God weep? On a way like this, on a day like this. You know, we look at John 11, and we see there, the first verse I ever memorized, Jesus wept. I was so proud of myself. John 11, 35, Jesus wept, and we saw that in the context where Lazarus had died, and we think, well, Jesus obviously died, wept because his friend had died. Why would, he, why would he weep over that? Remember, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me should never perish. Amen. That's Jesus. So why would he weep over a dead man? The Bible says in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 13, he said, uh, uh, he said no, I'm thinking of Psalms 116 and verse 20. He said, blessed are those that die in the Lord. What a glorious thing. Amen. So why would Jesus weep? Why would Jesus weep in this moment? Why would Jesus have compassion on the multitude in Matthew chapter 9 as He looked out on the multitudes and they were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd and he, and he wept and He had compassion upon them and He said, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that they send forth laborers into His harvest. Why did He weep? Why did He have emotion? Why did He care? Because He loves us. And He knew what was about to happen. In verse 42, He reveals it. If thou hast said, hadst known, even now, talking about Jerusalem, his people, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes, for the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee about and keep thee in on every side and shall lay these even with the ground and the children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knowest not the time of thy visitation. You know what he said? He wept 
because they rejected him. They, re they knew they, he was about to go to Jerusalem. He was about to be rejected. They were about to refuse him as their Savior. And, for, and just 483 years prior to this, God revealed to Daniel, and he said, listen, there's going to be a time when the, uh, the, the, prince, the people of the prince that shall come will destroy this place. And, pro, and, and we see this revealed in, in history in AD 30 when the Romans came in. And then Christ mentions it again here in Luke chapter 19. And we see that God uh, wept because these people rejected because thou knewest not. They didn't care. John 1.11 says, He came... Unto his own, and his own received him not. You see, in just a few days, the Jews would go from crying Hosanna to crucify. And Jesus would be, would be cut off. And so as Jesus looked on top of this hill, and he was standing there, sitting there on the, on the top of this donkey, he looked out over the hill, and he wept. He had compassion on those that are lost. This is what got me. Do I care like God cares? Do I care for the people who are lost? Like Jesus cared. He knew he was about to be crucified. He knew he was about to, be, to go to the cross. But he was more concerned about the lost than anything else. He was concerned that they would reject. May I ask you a question? Will you reject? Will you reject Jesus? The Jews saw Him. They saw His miracles. They saw His person. They touched Him. They, they experienced the glories of heaven while He was on this earth. And then they rejected Him. Let me ask you, will you hear and reject as well? John 1, chapter 1 and verse 12 says, But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. And this is the truth today, that God has given you the opportunity to be called the son and daughter of God. It's your gift. But like any gift, you must receive it to yourself.